Welcome to Sibylline Podcasts, part of our insight series where we aim to provide relevant, timely and actionable analysis in a discursive format. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Please visit our website for more insight series updates. And as always, like, subscribe and share. Welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining this iteration of our podcast series. Today, I am joined by Hans Horan, our Cyber Risk Intelligence Analyst, and James Barth, our North America Intelligence Analysts. Thank you both for joining. Um, today, we're talking about the uh, recent incident of the uh, fuel pipeline hack, uh, energy issues here in, on, here in the U.S. On May 7th, uh, energy firm Colonial Pipeline disclosed that its systems had been successfully compromised by uh, an alleged ransomware attack. Uh, and in the aftermath, we're now seeing some perceived and real. Uh, I think there's a bit of both on the on the psychological and uh, and supply chain uh, issues going on. Uh, some energy shortages uh, in the U.S. East Coast, particularly in, in the Southeast. Hans, if I can ask you to uh, set the stage for us a little bit and kind of catch catch listeners up on some of the details of what uh, what happened and transpired up to, up to this point. Yeah, thank you, Greg. And that's a pretty good way to set this off. I mean, as you said, there's been a ransomware attack uh, against Colonial Pipeline, which is an energy company that provides roughly about 45% of the fuel needs for the East Coast of the US. Uh, as of right now, there's not too many concrete details about how uh, the hackers, which are the alleged dark side uh, ransomware group were able to get into colonial pipeline systems so it's kind of hard to speculate at this moment in terms of what the direct implications for for that company's security systems are but at the, at the moment we believe they've stolen about 100 gigabytes of sensitive data from the company and that they are being held at ransom for this information uh, in response to the ransomware attack we do know as as we've kind of seen the aftermath that colonial systems shut off part of their systems to prevent the spread of the malware and to make sure they could mitigate, mitigate a bit of the impact of the attack itself. As a result, we've seen mo- the majority of, of Colonial Pipeline's services be shut down, which has affected uh, fuel supplies within the East Coast of the US. So we're talking from Texas to about New Jersey, uh, that, that region uh, specifically. And uh, to provide a little bit more context about the actor itself and who's behind this, uh, as I said, the FBI has attributed this particular attack to Darkseid, which is a relatively new cyber threat actor. It first emerged in August 2020. Uh, However, despite the fact that it's only been around a couple months, uh, the tactics and targeting we've seen in previous attacks, so against uh, prior to this, we had seen two attacks against two large Brazilian utility companies likely indicates that these are veteran cyber criminals, not new individuals who have just started, uh, just entered the field. Another analysis we've seen kind of going around of the of the group's malware and other tactics indicates that they're likely an offshoot of another Russian ransomware group called Reevil. They're quite, they've, they've been around for, for years at this point. They're quite well known. And this would likely explain the discrepancy between how new the group is and the level of skill they're showing, especially in regards to this particular attack. But beyond that, it's still very vague and we won't really know too much about the exact implications of how much data has been stolen or what exact type of type of takeaways we can have from this until an actual formal investigation is done uh, by either a third party or by the U.S. authorities themselves. Okay, thank you, Hans. You know, and now, James, um, can you help me kind of understand a little bit uh, what has been the response so far, both from the uh, government and corporate perspectives up to this point? Sure, and uh, pleasure to be here. Well, as Hans said, 
In response to the attack, Colonial uh, took their systems offline um, and they're hoping to have everything operational by the end of the week. However, the, the response both from Colonial and from the government so far is, has been pretty, pretty meager. Colonial have reportedly not asked the government, the, the federal government for any help. And there are probably two related reasons as to, as to why that is. The first is that the government has a pretty strong no negotiation policy with criminals. And tied to this is the fact that in these situations, instead of negotiating with the criminals and, and paying a ransom, the government will often try to help companies restore their systems through data backups. So we can kind of infer from this that the fact that Colonial has not asked, from the, asked the federal government for any help implies some sort of, that there's a pretty reasonable chance that Colonial did not have their systems backed up and therefore are unable to recover their data and are, are probably in the midst of negotiating with the, with the ransomware team at the moment. On the government side of things, because Colonial have not asked for help, um, again, there has been pretty limited response, but the Acting Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency Director, uh, quite a mouthful there, CISA, Brandon Wales testified before the Senate Homeland Security Committee yesterday, that's the 11th of May, and said that Colonial has still not shared important technical information with the relevant government agencies. It makes it pretty difficult to evaluate what's gone on here, but for his part, he, he did say that that's to be expected. It's still in the grand context of things uh, and these sorts of developments relatively early for private companies to start sharing this sort of information with the federal government. Okay, thank you, James. That's terrific. Now, opening up the lens a little bit here on this, you know, if both of you you know, might in turn be able to share any of your thoughts on what are some of the direct implications for businesses as a result of this attack? Yeah, of course. I think uh, as we've all kind of seen, the most direct implication has been uh, to fuel supply within the East Coast of the U.S. As I said earlier, about 45% of the U.S. East Coast fuel supply is, is contributed by the Colonial Pipeline. And we've seen in the aftermath of, the, of this particular incident that the U.S.'s benchmark New York gas and futures has increased by much as 4.2%, and that was on May 10th, I believe. And as a result, we've seen speculation about fuel scarcity becoming an increasing problem in the coming days, weeks, depending on how long this incident goes on, uh, to the extent where we've seen areas such as the southeast of the U.S. where the Colonial Pipeline has supplies quite a bit of, of fuel itself and that there are very few alternatives to the colonial pipeline itself that we've seen more than a thousand gas stations basically report that they're running out of fuel while we can say that the cyber attack is partially to blame for this uh, the biggest contributor to this fuel supply at the moment would be panic buying from drivers and from citizens and residents of that area we've seen very similar behavior that we saw at the beginning of the pandemic or during a similar type of incident in the texas in the texas summer blackout we saw a few months ago where uh, an extreme incident happens, people panic and they start buying critical supplies. Uh, in this case, this would be fuel. As a, as a result, we've, we're seeing a, a shortage of such services and, and goods. This fuel scarcity, kind of on a larger, kind of more macro lens for, for businesses, presents a serious concern, especially for those in the transportation sector. As, as you know, as we all know, these transportation sectors are dependent on being able to transport goods and services uh, across, across border lines within communities. And increasing fuel costs will also contribute to being unable to effectively and, and cost efficiently complete these services or, or transport these goods. However, there's also the possibility of having a knock-on effect down the supply chain. So if we're looking at transportation services, transporting goods or medical supplies, that could have a potential impact on healthcare services and also 
businesses such as grocery shops and or other th other types of businesses to provide a type of critical or non-critical uh, good. So we could see later on also a, a slight food shortage or a potential uh, decline in medical supplies within hospitals or within other types of healthcare institutions uh, if this particular incident keeps on going on for, say, another few weeks. In addition to talking about transportation services, there's also potential risks to airliners. So uh, in addition to transporting normal supply and normal fuel, uh, the Corona pipeline also supplies the also supplies jet fuel for airliners. So this potential this potentially has a potential knock-on effect for airline those in the airline industry as well. We've already seen several airliners, such as American Airlines, reroute a couple of their flights out of so-called hotspots. And we've also seen reports of airliners scheduling extra refuel stops for long-term flights. So those out of the country or those cross-country, for example. And because of this, this could have a particularly troubling effect for those for those companies in that industry because of the fact that it could further kind of escalate the already uh, serious economic downturn they're experiencing because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, I mean, for my part, I, I would agree with everything uh, Hans has said there. I think it's pretty comprehensive. Um, analysis of the direct supply line impact. I would possibly add on that I think we're fortunate uh, in, in one respect, and that's the, the timing of this. Really, context is everything when it comes to these uh, sorts of attacks. As we saw earlier in the year, again, it wasn't a, uh, an attack, but a, a blackout in Texas had a huge impact, and that was primarily to do with the, the weather at the time and the inability for people to get gas to heat their homes had a kind of force multiplying effect. Um, so I think really we're quite lucky at the moment, uh, firstly in terms of the weather and then secondly, obviously the pandemic means there aren't too many people on the roads at, at this time. And so the government easing rules for drivers transporting gasoline and things like that, that move has been uh, has gone some way to ameliorating the, the damage here. If I could provide one kind of worst case, but also least likely scenario out of this, Last, towards the end of last year, we kind of saw an increase in physical attacks on critical infrastructure, primarily operate, perpetrated sorry, by um, what we believe are uh, far-left uh, environmental activists. There is a, a small chance, uh, but again, worst case scenario, that this sort of attack um, kind of highlights the vulnerability of a lot of critical infrastructure that if there are any environmental activist groups that do have the capabilities to hack into systems, this could kind of serve as some sort of uh, inspiration for those groups to carry out large-scale attacks in order to further their agendas of, of not having uh, planned or, or uh, operational uh, pipelines go through. Okay, great. Thank you for that. I guess one of my last questions then um, are some of kind of the longer term, maybe more policy risks for companies. Uh, do either of you have some thoughts on likely implications in terms of uh, legislative and regulatory actions that may uh, come about as a result of this? Yeah, I think the most prominent potential implication we have of this particular incident is in terms of looking at sanctions, sanctions against this particular group, uh, namely Darkside. Biden has said within the first few months of his presidency, and even a little bit prior to when he was still running, that he wants to get tougher on, on cybercrime and cybersecurity as, as a whole. So there's a potential of him issuing sanctions against this particular group as a response to this attack. We have a certain precedent for this. We have a similar ransom group called Evil Corp, who was put on the list of foreign sanctioned entities by, by the U.S. government in December 2019. While this 
while sanctions won't have a direct implication for this particular incident itself, it will have big implications for future cyber attacks launched by DarkSide. Or any offshoot, potential offshoots, and namely that any organization or business who are found to be paying a ransom request to DarkSide following the sanctions will be will potentially be in violation of U.S. sanctions, which means they can be fined, and they can potentially put on a list for violating these sanctions, which has serious implications uh, not only for trying to prevent future attacks, but also for businesses in terms of how they go about their cybersecurity. It'll put a bigger emphasis on making sure you prevent attacks instead of trying to respond by paying the ransom. But furthermore, also have a big implication for how we see dark side attacks evolve in the next couple of months to years if such sanctions are implemented. Particularly the fact that these these attacks will have cut off a certain revenue stream for this group because the government they will no longer be able to as easily negotiate with with customers because there will be this inherent desire not to negotiate because they could be in violation of sanctions. That could result in dark side setting up subgroups or offshoots. That's something that Evil Corp, is, Evil Corp has done since 2019. We've seen them try and avoid, kind of curb these sanctions by developing groups that aren't linked by name and trying to raise funds that way. So we could see a development of these smaller groups who launch potentially smaller, more covert attacks uh, to try and raise funds, but ultimately, the, the idea is that we could potentially see more attacks from these offshoots, but not necessarily to the same scale we'll see for, for the colonial, uh, uh, in the same scale as the colonial pipeline attack. On top of that, it will be this attack and uh, the implications that, that have kind of come out of it will give further credence to Biden's 100-day infrastructure plan. So essentially this plan wants to help improve the U.S.'s aging critical infrastructure. Uh, a particular focus will likely be put on software supply chains and other third-party services. This is particularly going to be important if it comes out during the course of an investigation of what happened during the Colonial Pipeline incident, that it, the hackers targeted and compromised a software supply chain or third-party service. This is particularly important for the Biden administration because of the fact that we've already had very similar incidents in the SolarWinds attack and the Microsoft Exchange server attacks. These have both kind of shown that the U.S. and its critical infrastructure are very vulnerable through these, these attack points. And if we get a third such incident in a matter of months, this can become a very, very key point for Biden, and especially for the, the related cybersecurity agencies within the U.S. government, because it's shown that they're consistently weak, they're consistently weak in these areas, and that needs, that needs to be addressed. Completely agree with that, Sarah. I think it's also worth drawing out the distinction between the 100-day infrastructure plan, which he just mentioned there, and Biden's uh, original, you know, over $2 trillion investment in infrastructure. Part of the impetus for submitting the 100-day infrastructure plan was the fact that there was a, a lot of uh, backlash over the fact that his initial $2 trillion investment didn't earmark anything for cybersecurity. And um, I think that that's kind of symptomatic of, of the fact that the U.S. has perhaps been a little bit slow in responding and uh, in trying to proactively preempt these sorts of things and, and bolster its defenses. Um, and it's now kind of playing catch up and, and trying to do so um, as fast as possible. In addition to what Hans is, has outlined there, another thing that's kind of circulating at the moment is the is an executive order. Um, it's been circulating for a couple of weeks now. It's largely in response to the solar winds hack. And as a result of that, it's more targeted towards software companies that have interaction with the federal government. So rumors about what will be included in the final product suggest that uh, final bill, sorry, 
suggest that it will create digital safety standards for federal agencies and those who uh, contractors who are developing software for the government. It would also require any vulnerabilities in software to be reported to the government. And uh, importantly, violators uh, would be banned from selling their software to the government, um, which would have significant knock-on effects and implications for their viability in the, in the private sector. So that's kind of uh, all pretty much tied to the federal government. I think it's, it's pretty unlikely that we're going to see very strong regulatory action in the private sector at the moment. But obviously, as I said there, any company who's operating both in the public sector and the private sector, um, if they're selling software to the government, it could be hit. or, or They are at more risk to regulation uh, with this new executive order that's likely to come in soon that would have implications for their private sector business too. Fantastic. Thank you. As always, you know, some really, uh, you know, enlightening thoughts both of you have shared there. You know, uh, as, as we kind of come towards closing, um, I'll ask if either or both of you have any uh, final thoughts and, and, and uh, parting wisdom uh, for our, our clients and listeners. Well, just to, to close on my end, I, I think it's important to draw awareness for, for clients to the fact that the Ransomware is a, a very common thing at the moment, and it's highly likely to be targeted on, on critical infrastructure all over the US. And so just to, to provide one sort of example for this, um, as I said earlier, Brandon Wales was, uh, he gave testimony ahead of the, uh, to, to the committee yesterday and was asked if there was any ransomware focused on critical infrastructure uh, elsewhere in, in the US. Um, and his answer was pretty blunt, which is, that is true. Um, so I think that clients need to be uh, slightly more vigilant now than they have been uh, in the previous couple of years. Um, this is definitely a problem that, that's escalated in, in the past year and, and certainly in the past couple of months. Um, obviously, the pandemic was a, a kind of trigger for this, but it, it's, it's uh, continuing to escalate and is unlikely to go away. Yeah, I'm building on top of that idea. I think it's important to note that by nature, many hacking uh, groups and hackers in general are very, very lazy, and they're going to target the weak, the weak targets. And the U.S. government has shown consistently at this point that they are not up to snuff when it comes to being able to, correct, to protect their critical infrastructure. So I wouldn't only look at ransomware attacks as being a potential threat vector for the next couple months or the upcoming year. I would also look at things like business email compromise scams, phishing attacks. Um, crypto jacking attacks, things that, I mean, any type of attack that's going to help a cyber criminal group either gain financial means or their, or a political driven attack by a state, state linked actor. These are also possibilities as well. So if we can leave you with anything, it would be, this is going to be a consistent problem until these types of vulnerabilities are fixed. Outstanding. Again, thank you both so much. You know, as always, this uh, proves the point of there being uh, a, a significant overlap and, and blending of cyber and, and information risk topics with more established security and risk management uh, in, in intelligence uh, and, and risk management issues. Hans, James, um, as always, you know, some, some fantastic insight and wisdom provided, and thank you both very much. And now, as we always do um, at this point in the podcast, I'd like to turn things over to our Insight team. Today we have Will Writing, our lead analyst for uh, Middle East and Africa, to share with us some thoughts on issues and topics to be mindful of in the uh, week ahead. Will, thank you very much for joining. Uh, what are your thoughts to uh, to share with us today? Okay, thanks very much, Greg. 
I guess the, the key event across much of the Middle East and Africa over the course of the next couple of days, uh, which will be extending into the weekend, is the celebration of, of Eid al-Fitr festival, which ends the holy month of Ramadan, which has been running since the middle of April. Uh, and as we'll see across much of the Muslim world, in addition to the kind of standard disruption uh, that one might expect from a, a large public holiday, um, there's also a certain emphasis on maintaining uh, some de degree of discipline in relation to uh, COVID-19 restrictions. So, for example, in the, the UAE, we've seen the authorities be quite zealous about um, dishing out fines for those breaching restrictions on public gatherings, for example, during um, the festivities in and around Ramadan. So I'd expect that scrutiny to continue over the weekend. Uh, and then as the Eid celebrations finish in Turkey on Monday, uh, the government there will be reassessing uh, a lockdown which they've imposed for much of the last two to three weeks uh, as a result of spiking COVID infections in April. So there's a potential that from Monday, Turkey will make a decision on either extending its lockdown or uh, alleviating it steadily week by week, which is another option that they've mooted. So, uh, yeah, changes to come there. Also, over the weekend in Europe, there's a couple of environmental protests that will be happening on the 15th, uh, one in Germany, uh, led by Extinction Rebellion and another in France. Uh, in France, it's mainly centred on Paris and the Place de la Bastille. In Germany, protests organised by XR will be a little bit more wide-ranging. However, uh, in both cases, all we really expect to see is uh, localised disruption rather than any sort of substantial clashes with the police or anything like that. Then on Monday in Russia, there's a court hearing uh, which will likely classify the organisation led by uh, opposition leader Alexei Navalny as an extremist organisation. While... Uh, in and around the court hearing itself, um, there might be some small scale protests. Really, this is a, an event that has medium term implications insofar as it will um, substantially impede the ability of the op opposition to um, organise protests uh, and other large scale events ahead of the state Duma elections uh, in September, which as a result of this classification might pass ever so slightly peacefully or at least uh, as a result, albeit no less controversial internationally, no doubt. Uh, and then also looking forward to next Tuesday, or the 18th of May, it's the Remembrance Day or Mullivaikal Day um, celebrations in Sri Lanka. So while this is a public holiday uh, that marks the end of the Sri Lankan civil war, whether the government typically holds military parades and, and other public events, there is the possibility that uh, the, the losers, as you might say, in, in that civil war, the uh, Tamil community, do occasionally hold commemorative events of their own, um, but these are likely to be broken up by authorities. So there is a risk of sort of localised clashes and the potential for unrest on the 18th of May uh, in Sri Lanka. And that concludes uh, our forecast for this week. Um, please join us again next week. And I would say in the meantime, if you wish to get in touch with us, please do so at info at or look us up on uh, LinkedIn. 